Thank you for joining us today. I'm Sina Hairi from Uma Health, and I have the distinct pleasure of being with one of my favorite mentors and close friends, Nancy Cheshire, to bring you this podcast on PROM and PROM. And what we decided to do was instead of giving kind of a lecture format, just to discuss some clinical vignettes because that might be more useful for the audience. And we'll do this in two parts. Part one is going to be focusing on the actual presentation and diagnosis of PROM and PROM. And part two, we'll just kind of dive into the clinical management and discuss some of the more difficult or nuanced clinical scenarios that we may have. Nancy, welcome. Hey, Sina, it's great to talk with you and good to be in a mutual fan club. (laughs) Awesome. Thank you. So, Nancy, I think I I learned this from you actually back going back to the fellowship days. I think vignettes are a lot more fun and useful when you talk about a variety of topics in perinatal medicine. So with PROM and PROM, let's start with one interesting one and just kind of let the discussion guide itself from there. Let's assume we have a 27-year-old gravid up to para one presenting at 24 weeks gestation with a lagging fundal height. Let's say the fundal height is measuring 21 centimeters and she's coming in for an evaluation. And fortunately, let's say the resident on the deck did a quick evaluation and the baby's bladder and kidneys appear normal and the growth is normal and the maximum vertical pocket is at three centimeters. How would you go about you know, evaluating this case. Yeah, these are the kind of, we're we're starting with a a very common vignette that is seen. So it's good to have a standardized approach here. As we all know, the use of the fundal height measurement in obstetric practice is a screening tool for growth or fluid abnormalities. And it's okay. It alerts the clinician to evaluate the patient further. And in the case presented, the uh, assumption is that the urinary tract is normal as a source for relatively low fluid. It's important to kind of have a good working definition of what low fluid is. And I think it's pretty well standardized at this point that the maximum vertical pocket is a better predictor of poor perinatal outcome than the amniotic fluid index. So it has a lower false positive rate for pathology than does the AFI. And the typical cutoff that is used is a maximum vertical pocket or MVP of two centimeters. So this particular situation is above that, but clearly would raise one's concerns about some pathology going on. The other important thing to recognize is this point in pregnancy at 24 weeks gestation is kind of in the middle of the time when fluid volume is actually relative to the size of the baby increasing. So I also would take into account the gestational age here of 24 weeks and an MVP of three raises my concerns. So so then you go down the differential diagnosis of relatively low fluid. You didn't mention fetal growth. And so I'm going to include that in the differential that what we may be dealing with here is a baby who is growth restricted, secondary, presumably to a placental pathology. And I'd want to make sure that that is not the case. So assuming that a follow-up scan, not by the relatively inexperienced person, but by an experienced person confirms the relatively low fluid normal growth and normal fetal anatomy, that sort of assessment deals with a big chunk of the differential diagnosis. 
leaving more or less other placental pathology and pre-labor rupture of the membranes. Yeah, no, and then you, you nailed it. And let's assume in this case, for the purpose of going towards a P-PROM path, that this is a normally grown fetus. And in terms of the MVP, I mean, you nailed it on the head. And for those of us that, you know, read 40, 50, 60 scans a day, even if you have the MVP that might be at three or four centimeters, you can usually eyeball these cases and the kiddo may look crowded in that uterus and sometimes subjectively even it may just seem a little bit on the lower end of normal. But let's assume that everything is okay here and we're going down the PPROM eval. This is something that we commonly come across in an MFM clinic specifically as well. And usually, as everybody knows, a PPROM evaluation to just kind of rule that out of your differential, it's going to begin with a good history and just seeing what that pregnant individual has been experiencing at home before they came to see you. A physical exam, I think we can't forget about that. I, I do cover a fair bit of rural hospitals where it's almost like automatic for the nurses to just collect the swabs and send them down without even putting a speculum in or anything like that. But I think that exam in itself is paramount when you're doing a PPROM evaluation. And if none of that stuff gives you the answer that you need or it's equivocal, then of course you can go down the pathway of biochemical testing. Yeah. I mean, as with, I think the number that I sticks in my head, which may be apocryphal, but is that for most things in people's health, you can pretty much get the diagnosis about 80% of the time with a good history and physical Importantly, though, there are situations where you end up with a diagnosis, pre-labor rupture of the membranes, and the patient is not aware of frequent loss of fluid. It might be that she chronically has leukorrhea or other increased vaginal discharge that can be common in pregnancy, and she just may not have recognized it. And so the history isn't a negative history, of course, doesn't rule out the possibility that she has ruptured the membranes. Physical exam is helpful, but and certainly will be abnormal in the vast majority of cases where someone's got mid-trimester membrane rupture, but again, not 100%. So, so having a further diagnostic pathway such as biochemical testing is super important. And for the audience, just one frame of reference, we did put together an entry in the OBG project website for PPROM. So a lot of the information we refer to today is actually found on that on that page. And I'm sure the link will be attached to this in case you're covering the deck or come across something that you just need to refer back and find that index information. I think before we dive into the biochemical tests that are available, let's just touch on quickly on nitrazine and fern, which a lot of us, especially my era coming up as a resident, we trained on. And with nitrazine, before we dive into it, I just want to level set for the, for the audience. And we always need these reminders in terms of what numbers are we looking at. The pH of amniotic fluid is about 7.1 to 7.3. Vaginal pH tends to range between 4.5 and 6. And urinary pH is generally less than 6. So with that in mind, Nancy, when you go down the path of nitrazine or fern, any kind of pearls of wisdom or any comments you want to make about that? Yeah, it's a great question. And I agree that those are reasonable cornerstones to be thinking about in the further evaluation of what's going on with this patient. The ability to do these tends to be present in most labor and delivery units or nearby them. So there are tests that can be done. The false positives with nitrazine testing can be increased in the presence of blood or semen. If 
there's been some sort of antiseptic used. So something like povidine, iodine, some lubricants can cause a false positive trichomoniasis and BV can cause false positives. And so there's a uh, group of patients where if a physical exam, for instance, shows some blood or there's a, a history of recent sexual intercourse or you see semen, or sperm on on the wet prep, it you know it, it tends not to be as as helpful. As well, you can get a false negative test if there's prolonged membrane rupture without a lot of, of fluid leakage. So, recalling that the fetus makes about a cc per kilo of of urine per hour. If you've got a 24 weeker, 600 gram baby that's and has membrane rupture, that's not a lot of new urine being produced to potentially leak out. So that, that can give you a false negative. The arborization test, so-called ferning test, is I remember being a medical student, just being amazed watching arborization occur when I was in the emergency room as a student. One of the things to recognize is that the salinity of amniotic fluid increases over time. So the arborization is going to increase over time. In the early second trimester, sometimes it helps to heat the slide so that it increases the chance that it'll arborize if it's, if it's actually ruptured membranes. And you can do that with the light bulb in the, in the microscope. That's, that's sometimes helpful. But again, the, the same sort of things can lead to a false positive or false negative as with the um, pH. Exactly. And then with nitrazine, the one comment or pearl that I think, the, the, especially the younger folks the, on, the, on the audience need to be mindful of is that nitrazine is really good performance-wise if it's within an hour or two of the rupture. If the longer you go, the less you know useful it becomes. And I think it drops into the 70, 75% range in terms of its sensitivity. Yeah. But I, I think the, the key thing is that because there's a false positive and false negative rate with both of these tests, if you've got a high index of suspicion that the patient actually has ruptured membranes and these tests are negative, or if you've got a situation where you are, you know that you can't rely on it, so there's blood there or evidence of semen present, you might not go down even using them. Or if, they're, if they don't give you a positive answer or a negative answer, you might want to be doing other tests. Exactly. So I'm going to save the, the commercial biochemical tests that are available for the next vignette because I think they'll hit the spot in terms of a good scenario of using them. Let's assume we've got a 30-year-old gravid of four, para three pregnant individual coming in at 32 weeks gestation, who we know has had a complete placenta previa. She's complaining about a pink, watery discharge. This is a fun one. So how would you go about this one, Nancy? Yeah, so I, I know I've interacted with a bunch of learners who early on in their careers didn't really know that you could get ruptured membranes with Previa, and you certainly can. You can rupture membranes anywhere, not just over the cervix. And so the complete Previa doesn't preclude that. And in this setting, one has to worry that you might be dealing with an abruption because pregnant people who have a complete previa do have an elevated risk of abruption as well. So that's got to be in the back of your mind that, that that may be what's going on here. You may be dealing with premature separation or bleeding from the previa 
with a clot behind it. And as a clot reabsorbs over time, the serum gets extruded and is yellow. And that could be what's going on is that you're actually just seeing resolution of a retroplacental clot from the previa. Or you could have premature rupture of the membranes or pre-labor rupture of the membrane. So that's the sort of set of things that I would be thinking about, as well as other things that cause discharge, like a cervicitis or vaginitis, those sorts of things. Excellent points. And as, as we talked about it previously, nitrazine and the presence of blood is not going to be the best tool. What I wanted to make sure the audience knew was that as a provider, when you go into that evaluation, when you walk into the triage area, you need to know what tools you have and what the limitations of that tool are. As we talked about previously, there's a false positive with blood for nitrazine, so that goes out the window. You're doing your spec exam, and it's good to have either Amnisure, Actum, Prom, or Rum Plus available to you. And whenever you go to use one of them, you want to know in the back of your head what setting are they appropriate and what setting are they not appropriate. Will it work with semen presence in the vault? Will it work with trace blood? Will it work with BV? And those features are listed for you to kind of help you out in terms of determining which one you're going to go with when you complete your evaluation. Yeah. And I think exactly what you're saying, it's really important to know the tests that you're using in any setting. This is the one we're talking about, but in any setting, you have to know the testing parameters about that test. The sort of pragmatic response is a given hospital or doctor's office or clinic is not likely to have an array of those. They're likely to have one vendor that they use. And it's super important to be very familiar with that vendors, whoever you have available to you, product and, and how they're useful. And the OBG project entry is very good about the different tests that are available. And you don't want to put yourself in that dreaded scenario of long cervix, cervical length over 4.5 and a positive FFN, which all oh. of us have been consulted on. Let me do this for the sake of maintaining the audience's attention. That so, never what? happens. No, no case reportable. <laughs> Let's go to the last case and wrap it up with this and some pearls of wisdom. 35-year-old, 28 weeks, poorly controlled diabetes. A1C, let's say 7%, comes in with a moderate amount of vaginal discharge. I think we've touched on this before, but just kind of, you know, a couple of points about this and maybe wrap it up with some pearls of wisdom for our audience. Yeah. So again, you've added in the diabetes issue. And of course, women who have diabetes are at increased risk of other things as, as well as, and in this case, what I'm specifically thinking about is vaginal or vulvovaginal candidiasis that that ends up being an important issue. I've seen women who have had this basically a carpet of fungi that's just sort of weeping and producing a, a good deal of, of inflammatory fluid. Absolutely miserable for the patient. And so again, the history and physical will likely lead you down that path, that diagnostic path should be fairly straightforward. Important to recognize, though, that vaginal inflammation from whatever source can be associated with ruptured membranes. So you can't, just because she's got candidiasis, assume that her fluid is, in fact, from that. It might be that she also has PPROM. Thanks, Nancy. That That's very helpful. And I think one pearl of wisdom I want to leave the audience with is the fact that having done this now over 15 years, 
I think any clinician will attest to the fact that medicine has a nasty habit of humbling you and never be afraid to reach back out to a resource, to look up the textbook, to look up some definition, because that's just how medicine is. Nothing presents the way it's supposed to. And even right now, when I do consults and stuff, I can't tell you how many times I'm jumping on various resources to check the information, check out the performance, check out the latest and greatest. That's my one takeaway point from this. And I couldn't agree more. I've done it a few more years than you have. And I find that if I don't know that I'm up to date with something, that it's really useful to look for a recent reasonable review article or guideline, it is one of the places that the OBG project really shines is by making the latest information very quickly and digestibly available. Awesome. Thank you so much, Nancy. Folks, we hope you enjoyed this. And again, we'll provide a link to the entry for the PPOM entry. The next podcast, we will discuss some of the management nuances around PPROM and PROM as well. We thank you for joining us. And again, Nancy, thank you so much for lending us your time. Absolutely. Talk to you soon.